1: The perfect campaign is the perfect music. That's why Premium Beat Tracks are produced by award-winning musicians at world-class studios. Plus, our license gives you tracks for a lifetime. Pay once and never again. Save 25% on your next track at premiumbeat.com slash royalty free slash podcast. <sighs>
0: I'm maybe maybe I may be starting a series on police corruption I I haven't completely made up my mind Some cops aren't smart and dedicated Like on television we've said that talked about stupid cops and lazy cops cops who don't know how to do their jobs I don't know we've talked about straight on malfeasance Uh, cops who are corrupt this is who killed Teresa the word Quebec It's an Algonquin word. It means where the river's narrow. And where that place is, is right around Quebec City. Where the St. Lawrence River begins to taper in. Effect is is very clearly visible uh, to this day. It's what uh, Samuel Champlain saw in 1608, but even to this day, if you're in Quebec City, uh, do yourself the favor at least once of staying or at least visiting the um, Chateau Frontenac Hotel, which sits on those cliffs overlooking the St. Lawrence. And when you're there, what you're going to want to do is take the elevator all the way up to the very top floor, as high as you can go. Um, and then you're going to go into a stairwell, you know, where they take the laundry and the food service. And in that stairwell, there's going to be a window uh, with the most spectacular view overlooking uh, downstream the St. Lawrence River as uh, it, it widens out uh, into the Atlantic. Observe the vista, and we're coming back into the hallway of the hotel with the line of rooms headed for the elevator. And in front of one of the rooms, there's this couple, and um, they're fumbling with the keys in the lock to get into the room. And the woman is stunning. And she's she's dressed um, far too uh, formally uh, for like one o'clock in the afternoon. She looks, you know, she's all tricked out with uh, cocktail dress and stockings and high heels, um, and she's young. And the guy um, is much older. Um, uh, not dressed to the same degree. Uh, He he may have even been wearing like a velour uh, tracksuit and appears not local. She appeared French and local, but he uh, did not. Uh, They eventually make the key function go into the room they close the door uh, later i'm talking to my daughters about this and uh, you know talking about the view and what did you like and one of them says you know i, I like the water another one says i like the boats on the water third one says I liked the princess and her daddy <laughs> uh, it, it was it was uh, it was a sex trade worker and uh, her client um, princess and her daddy yeah actually she kind of got it right um, so hold that thought we're gonna come back to that later. On November 10,
1: 1969,
0: Detective Sergeant Louis-Georges Dupont of the Trois-Rivières Police Force was found dead in a field on the outskirts of town slumped across the front seat of his unmarked police vehicle. Dupont had been missing for five days. It was rumored he was suffering from depression. He was shot twice through the chest, and his death was hastily ruled a suicide. There were many problems with this theory. Number one, Dupont's Colt thirty-eight service revolver was recovered from the vehicle, but his fingerprints weren't on the weapon. Number two, no bloodstains were found on the interior of the car. Number three, though the coroner ruled he had been shot in the chest, the bullet wounds clearly showed that the holes on the front of Dupont's body were larger than the holes in his back, indicating he had actually been shot from behind, thus making suicide the implausible impossible. And uh, number four, at the time of his death... Dupont was in the midst of an investigation about police corruption within the Trois-Rivières force. The two detectives who investigated Dupont's death were two of his superior officers. Uh, The corruption report that eventually came out of Dupont's investigative work recommended that the two detectives be fired. So, after a fairly circuitous opening today we will be delving into the questions and mysteries of what has simply come to be known in Quebec as L'Affaire Dupont. We will not have time uh, to go over every detail, every uh, minutiae um, about L'Affaire Dupont, and that has already been done anyway. Uh, there's a lot of information already out there about this case, um, but the majority of it is in is in French. So this was really my way of um, introducing uh, a, a different audience to um, something in Quebec uh, uh, that ha- remains extremely important. The this November will be the 50th anniversary of this case. Um, so today I'm going to give you a summary of some of the, the main points. Um, everyone in Quebec knows this case. Um, you know, there are people who could recite it chapter and verse, uh, studied it for years. Um, not the least of which is the Dupont family. And, um, I really don't care to answer the question today or ever really about was it murder or was it suicide. For me to uh, reinvestigate what has already been thoroughly, uh, maybe even exhaustively investigated would be repetitive and pointless and boring. Um, I'm less interested in the mystery and I'm more intrigued by the family's long and uh, episodic journey to obtain justice. bois Rivière police force had actually been the subject of two separate investigations by the Quebec Police Commission. There's the one in 1969 for which uh, Louis-Georges Dupont was working on, and there's a later investigation in 1982. Little is known about the 1969 inquiry as apparently it was a a closed-door affair, but the second inquiry, the 1982 inquiry, was a public event uh, and a apparently quite a circus, quite a shit show. Uh, It was held across the St. Lawrence River from Trois-Rivières at uh, the courthouse in the little town of uh, Nicolette. And apparently people would line up in the morning, uh, you know, with their coffee and then stampede the place uh, to hear this shocking testimony about the 100-man Trois-Rivières police force. There were accusations of perjury, uh, intimidation of witnesses, false reports, armed robbery, attempted murder, fabrication of evidence, conflicts of interest. In short, everything to suggest that the police force wasn't there to protect residents, but actually posed an imminent threat to them. Details of the corruption were reported by David Johnston uh, in the December 13th, 1982 edition of the Montreal Gazette. One of the most shocking testimonials came from a detective who revealed that uh, police staged two armed robberies, two holdups, in 1976 to improve their crime resolution rates. (laughs) Um... The detective, uh, Denis uh, Leclerc, testified how he and a civilian accomplice gave two boys revolvers loaded with blanks and then instructed them to carry out uh, two corner store robberies. Uh, When the boys exited the staged holdup, police, of course, quickly pounced on them, um, but there was a mishap. One of the boys, the 16-year-old boy, was was injured when uh, a a police revolver accidentally um, went off and shot him. After his testimonial, uh, former Detective Leclerc was escorted back to prison because he was in fact now serving a 10-year sentence for the attempted murder of a local woman. So testimony continued. Several officers admitted that they owned and operated bars in Trois-Rivières, that they regularly allowed miners into the establishments. Uh, It's no big deal, Officer Constable uh, Martineau uh, said, um, while admitting that he, he was operating a company that also distributed cheese and sausage to local taverns and brasseries. Officers confessed that they kept uh, revolvers seized in weapons arrests for personal use, that police paid off informants with drugs, that residents were often extorted for cash. A stripper confessed that she had performed at the detectives' offices at the Trois-Rivières H.Q., uh, while other policemen boasted that they would regularly sleep with prostitutes at the station, the force turned a blind eye to the two hundred and fifty prostitutes working uh, the downtown corridor at that time. Trovier had a population of about forty five thousand uh, so that's that's an <laughs> quite a per capita number of prostitutes um it was alleged that the senior officers uh, controlled and possibly even uh, ran sex worker operations in the in the town. No one is naive here or uh, shocked at the idea of... Police sleeping with, you know, sex trade workers. And we even talked about it earlier in the year with the series uh, A Flashing Fire Will Follow. It's kind of a main component of, of all of that uh, discussion. And um, uh, nor, nor should anybody be so uh, surprised um, at the idea of a, a, a cop in 1969, particularly in Trois Rivières, holding down a a second job it, um, it, hell, it goes on to this day uh, you, you, with the first responders, particularly the fire department i don't I don't know a, a firefighter who doesn't have you know also a you know a, like a lawn service business or he's also you know an inspector or <laughs> you, you know it's this has been going on for a long time, but I think you need to understand a little bit about, uh, in order to understand what was going on here, understand what Trois-Rivières is and was in in 1969. So uh, Trois-Rivières is a town uh, on the St. Lawrence city uh, about midway between uh, Quebec City and Montreal, downstream of uh, Montreal. And um, I think at that time it was the third largest uh, city. Sherbrooke might have been a little bit larger, but I think trois rivier was the third largest. But, you know, an industrial town, uh, shipping industry, pulp and paper, um, and um, a a lot of construction going on at that time um, in that area. And where... um, where Quebec City would have been the center of tourism uh, in, in Quebec at that time, you know, everybody would come to a, a Canadian Pacific Hotel like the Chateau Frontenac and stay there. Um, and Montreal would still it would have been in that era, this the center of commerce and the economy. Um, it it was the capital of com- commerce in 1969 uh it wasn't until 76 that um, the separatists got into power and you had the exodus uh, where Toronto became the center of, of commerce, but that wasn't happening yet. Um, law enforcement has always been disgruntled about their salaries, but I would suspect that a cop in Quebec City or in Montreal in that era probably made a, um, a larger salary than a cop. I mean, they're all. They were, you know, they they all come under the umbrella of the police union. But I think I think a cop in, in Trois Rivieres probably didn't make as much of his money and probably had to cut corners, and uh, you know, have a sign-lined uh, gig and all that. So there's that component. There's also the component um, that uh, you know, Trois Rivieres was uh, was was an open city uh, back then, and almost by design. I mean you had all these hotels right the hotel saint louis the hotel saint paul the saint george um the continental the three rivers the comartin um all of these uh places and lots of bars and lots of prostitution um uh, and the morality squad uh you know uh controlled the whole thing um, and where there's prostitution there's drugs and on and on and on uh, one sex trade worker interviewed for that cbc or radio canada story at the beginning said that in that era she was servicing up to 15 clients a day and there was something for everybody right there was there were rooms and establishments for high profile people people like politicians for instance and then even like down on the docks where they were building the the bridge across the St. Lawrence construction uh, site there the, there were these cabins little, you know, for the workers there um and, you know, if a red light was on it meant the, the the sex worker was occupied and it was off then you could go for services the farmers who came into market had their own establishments so everybody had something and I was talking to my dad about this because my dad worked construction in that era. He was an engineer. And I said, uh, were you responsible for that bridge that went up in Trois-Rivières, like in the late sixties? He said, no, that was my best friend's job. Um, but, uh, I would go there and visit him, uh, occasionally. And then, you know, all of a sudden the conversation gets uncomfortable. You're like, I don't know if I want to know any more about this, <laughs> what you were up to. But, uh, but that's it. Trois-Rivières was an was an open city, you know. It was a red zone in in that area, where, um, you know, a somebody who worked at the National Assembly in uh, in Quebec City, uh, which is the the seat of the province. If you were a politician or something in a high profile, you wouldn't necessarily take. Um, a uh, sex trade w- worker to the Frontenac uh in that story I related at the beginning particularly maybe today where it's much larger but you would risk um being seen um and exposure and scandal uh, the same in Montreal if you were if you were at a high level on the political sphere um you wouldn't do your shenanigans in Montreal. You'd go to Trois-Rivières where you could feel safe and, and protected uh, somewhat in a, in a, so that's the kind of, I, I can't really think of a comparison in, in the United States, but, but that's the kind of town it was. Um, and these were the elements, um, that, uh, led, uh, Georges. Uh, uh Louis Georges Dupont to be right in the centre, right at the focus of of uncovering some possibly high stakes scandal. 1982 inquiry was headed up by Judge Denis Dion, who was a burly man. In, uh, and in 1978, he headed up a different public inquiry into organized crime in Montreal. And for that, he was severely beaten outside his Peel Street home by four thugs. In the Trois-Rivières inquiry, testimony became so embarrassing that the Quebec Police Union attempted unsuccessfully to obtain a court order banning reporters and the public from the Nicolette Courthouse. The president of the local chamber of commerce, W. Daniel Villeneuve, chalked the whole matter up to a a pet theory often heard in Quebec. Bad apples. What's unfortunate is that a few people are spoiling the reputations of a whole police force. Remember, there's still a lot of good, honest policemen here. Which brings us back to Louis-Georges Dupont. Now, you can stop me whenever any of this starts sounding familiar. In the years after his death, Dupont's family, chiefly led by his two sons, Jacques and Robert Dupont, began privately sleuthing into Louis-Georges Dupont's death. Some of the Dupont brothers' findings included uh, number one, that their father was killed by lead bullets, but the ballistics report on Dupont's revolver only referenced metal tipped bullets. Number two, several of the original medical legal documents from Dupont's file had gone missing. And number three, the Duponts hired two pathologists from outside Quebec, uh, one from Vancouver and the other from the United States who concluded that the blood stain patterns and bullet wounds clearly pointed to murder the Dupont Sons knew nothing about police work and the Quebec justice system but they grew to become experts over the course of their investigations asked to describe the Quebec justice system, Jacques Dupont replied without hesitation, It's like driving a bicycle down a road and someone keeps coming out of the bushes to push a piece of wood into the spoke of your wheels. You ask a direct question and they turn around and lead you into another subject. (laughs) Uh, Right on, Jacques. (laughs) For nearly a decade, the Dupont family lobbied four successive uh, provincial public security ministers, Herbert Marx, Claude Ryan, Robert Middlemass, and Serge Menard, demanding a special commission take a second look into the ruling of suicide. All four ministers refused the request, so the family asked the Quebec Superior Court to order such an inquest on the grounds that the minister's refusals constituted a breach of public duty. Justice Yvan Saint-Julien agreed with the family and ordered Public Security Minister Serge Menard to open an inquiry. The investigation into L'Affaire Dupont began in the summer of 1996. Testimony was heard from over 50 witnesses. And before the process had even concluded, Justice Saint Julien, who by this time was merely an observer of the proceedings, publicly remarked that Dupont had been murdered. And he added, Since 1969, everything has been done to avoid casting light on this dark affair. The Dupont family even went to the extremity of having their father's body exhumed and re-examined by Dr. Michael Baden, a forensic expert who had worked on the O.J. Simpson defense team. In the end, it was all for nothing. In December 1996, in her 176-page report, Presiding Judge Céline Lasserte uh, Lamontagne ruled that Dupont's death was more compatible with suicide and incompatible with murder. Undeterred, the Dupont family vowed to keep fighting. controversial matters in this case concern the two-volume report of the 1969 inquiry, the first inquiry. Remember, we are now talking about three inquiries. There's the one in 1969 that Dupont was working on directly. There's the 1981 inquiry, which was the public event at the courthouse in Nicolette that helped shed light on affairs in 1969. And Then finally, there's the 1996 inquiry to determine the cause of death of Louis-Georges Dupont. The, The first volume of that 1969 report had been made public, but the second volume the one that contained Dupont's investigative work and testimony had been put under a publication ban for 160 years (laughs) I'll say that again the Quebec government ruled that a report into the corruption of a municipal police force cannot be seen by anyone until 2129 So picture this, fast forward 159 years, it's 2128. We've achieved world peace, reversed climate change, put some people on Mars. We found Atlantis, D.B. Cooper, Jimmy Hoffa, Kruger's millions, the Nazi gold train. Oak Island is no longer a mystery. Memphra is Magog's town mascot, Who killed Teresa is now he killed Teresa. But we still don't know the thoughts and conclusions of a detective sergeant from a small Quebec town concerning his police force. Earlier, we talked about uh, the fact uh, Dupont may have been suffering from depression. However, you know, who wouldn't be uh, if he if he knew what he's alleged to have known? And, uh, uh, Dr. Roger Caron testified that he'd prescribed tranquilizers to Dupont 11 months before his death and that Dupont had... Uh, personal problems unrelated to his police work. Uh, others testified that Dupont had uh, debts um, and was under financial strain. Uh, uh, Dr. Regin Letourneau said he treated Dupont seven times for depression in uh, three months prior to his disappearance on November 5th, 1969. Still, others suggested uh, that the strain uh, had been Uh, work-related. A lawyer for uh, the police union who worked uh, with Dupont, uh, Guy Lebrun, said that Dupont had had a difficult job in 1969 uh, with the inquiry because he was responsible for verifying all the allegations of corruption made against his colleagues and then reporting them back uh, to the police union. In the uh, Dupont inquiry, the family uh, was seeking $300,000 in compensation as well as a widow's police pension, which obviously would have been uh, denied, forfeited in the case of a suicide. Um while the father while dupont was still alive the dupont family you know they could have been described pretty much as working class middle class but after his death all of that changed um the family continued to live together um, um even as the boys matured into adults uh, in a modest modest like rented like apartment in uh, with many of them collecting welfare When Dupont's body was discovered, there was a suicide note found in the patrol car. Uh, A handwriting expert confirmed it was Dupont's writing. The note is addressed to his wife, Jeanne d'Arc, and it reads, uh, Jeanne d'Arc, you will see the lawyer Yvonne Gaudin and notary Gilles Garraud for all the documents. I love you very much. I ask for your forgiveness, Louis Georges for me the the suicide note uh um, i it doesn't really matter to me whether it's murder or suicide. I mean either way, I think the same forces appear to have driven Louis Georges Dupont to that outcome the strain and the pressure was the same, whether he was murdered or whether he took his own life. And um, the suicide note, you know, it it could have been forged. Uh it could have been written under duress, you know, with a gun to your head. Um, it could have been taken out of context. I mean, who knows what? Do we really know what he was referring there? Maybe he was, you know, maybe he's talking about, you know missing the appointment for the closing on his house or something right uh you know um go see the lawyer and the and the <laughs> go see the lawyer and the notary i can't make it i'm sorry uh who knows really what what that note is uh, without more uh context At the 1996 inquiry, Dupont's wife, Jeanne d'Arc, testified. She said, Before my husband died, he was very upset, terrified. He said he was being followed and he was afraid someone was going to kill him. He told me, it's not safe for me, it's not safe for you, and it's not safe for our children. This is who killed Teresa.
1: Mm
0: -hmm. Music today, that's the Quebec 70s rock blues band Off and Back. And I, I love Offenbach. I think I think the foundations of Quebec rock are um, harmonium, Offenbach, and uh, Cano, and um, um, Beaudemarche. That's the foundation. Um, all of it, you know. You, you know, there's there's always one guy you know, who you rebel against. And I guess that that's kind of like Félix Leclerc in Quebec is sort of like a Woody Guthrie uh, figure, um, check shirt and all that kind of thing. And then, you know, a, a Dylan comes along and makes that sound electric. So first there was Félix Leclerc, very traditional, uh, folky music. And then there were a bunch of guys who saw what was coming and and really wanted to rock out and that's uh i i and i didn't um listen when i was a kid i was not listening to these acts i was i knew who they were but it was french and i was stupid you know and you know i was like well don't listen to that i didn't come to that very late i was listening to like boston and aerosmith for Christ's sakes um it's only since doing this podcast that i've found this music and just really really loved it and so Offenbach uh it was actually Isabeau who uh, from the Guillain Potfan story who who introduced me to uh, Offenbach she kept sending me these songs said you should play this you should play this it's like I don't got time and then I finally listened to it um I listened to their first album which came out in the early 70s soap opera which most of the music today is from, and I was like, "Whoa, what is this?" I mean, I mean, I would, I would put that album up against um, anything from, from the blues era of Jethro Tall, Allman Brothers, uh, the first ZZ Top album, absolutely, and like all great things, right? When, you, um, like, when you first hear, like, the guy's voice is, is like oh my you know he's not really gonna sing like that is he I mean is this a a joke um it's like you're goddamn right he's gonna sing like that um but it's the same way that I mean remember the first time you heard like Dylan or or uh or Leonard Cohen or uh uh, the the first time these sent me uh, uh Richard Desjardins I was like he's not he's not really singing like that oh <laughs> it's like and then and then all of a sudden the next thing you know you just grow to just love it it's like Richard your, your dance is now like one of my favorites um and then um you know somehow uh, we got on this it's, it's Stéphane Lavec is the guy who originally wrote the story about uh, Michel Diry and M- uh, Melanie Tick uh, and we've since become uh, Facebook friends. We've never met, but um, he's a real good guy. And somehow he found out I liked Offenbach. He's like, you like Offenbach? I like Offenbach. <laughs> <laughs> um, so I I, I really, uh, it's great sort of like, Offshoot of this, you meet great people like Stefan, like uh, 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 actually a number of friends named Stefan, Isabeau, Annie, Annie Richard, Christian Gravner, these people. Uh, And what I really like, I mean, not only is their music balls to the wall, right? They kind of in Quebec own the 70s. um, And they were the first Quebec act to headline the Montreal Forum. And that uh, yeah, and, and that was a really big deal, you know. And I think they saw, you know, people like Deep Purple and Led Zeppelin selling out the Forum. And they were like, whoa, 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 wait, wait. We can do that. We don't need you guys coming in from England, taking our money, you know, back to the UK. We can do that on our own and make our own coin... Uh, Thank you very much, you know. From the mindset, the other night he sent me this clip of Joe Walsh talking about how there's no mojo in music today, what Joe Walsh said, that how great right that is. And uh, so, um, I don't know. I You know, I don't, I don't lose a whole lot of sleep over the fact that I never saw, like, it. I never saw Pink Floyd at the Olympic Stadium. I never saw Queen, uh, uh, you, you know, at Freddie Concert movies jumping around in the, in the Montreal Canadiens hat and white shorts I never I never saw that but I and I don't really sleep over that but I do I do wish um, I wish I had a seen Offenbach uh, live in their heyday that would have been a sight to a sight to see uh, anyway that's my musical soapbox for uh, today uh, Offenbach is on Spotify um It's it's like the French composer uh, O-F-F-E-N-B-A-C-H. This podcast is on Spotify. Um, You can also check us out on uh, well, if you're listening, you already know Stitcher and iTunes and SoundCloud and all that. Uh, You can follow us on Twitter, on Facebook, on Instagram. Uh, There's a website at TeresaLore.com T-H-E-R-E-S-A-A-L-L-O-R-E. There are visual components to uh, La Faire Dupin that I have posted online. If you want to go see uh, the man and his family and some other things. A copy of the suicide, the alleged suicide note. And um, there's also, there's the first ten minutes of a Radio Canada um documentary, uh, Enquête Matrous. Um, I don't know why there's only the first ten minutes, but there it is. Uh, Claude Poirier is in there. Uh, Claude Poirier is everywhere. There he is again, um, talking about this case. I I think he was a radio journalist then and and covered it in the day. Anyway, that's, um, enough of this nonsense. Uh, C'est un show le show pour uh, aujourd'hui. Ouais, c'est ça. C'est ça uh, ça commence et c'est fini uh, à ce moment. Alors je uh, suis John Alor, c'est Kitty qui uh, qui qui kill Theresa. Uh, uh, alors euh bonne journée, bon weekend. Bye bye.
1: Je chante comme un caillard.